First Peter chapter 4. I believe the bulletin has maybe the last week's passage, uh, verses 3 through 6. This morning we'll be looking at verses 7 through 9. I'll read the text and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Remember that these are the words of the Lord. Starting in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we come again into your presence asking for your help. We know that apart from your spirit, we will leave here without any sustenance or food. No one can be saved apart from your word and the spirit moving to make that word effectual. So we entrust our souls to you this morning. I pray that you would move among us, that hearts would be changed and more conformed to the image of Christ, that even this morning, lost ones would hear the name of Jesus. And as we heard in our reading this morning, many bowed the knee to Joseph when he was exalted to the high place of Egypt. Many here this morning would bow the knee to Jesus Christ since he has also been exalted to the highest place and he now has the name above every name. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, beloved, in the last several years, our family has had an opportunity to take a vacation to the Florida Atlantic coast two times. Each time has been a a real treat. My wife is a master planner, and after several weeks of preparation and packing and food purchases and the like, we'll get up early in the morning before the sun comes up and hit the road. The trip is a little over 600 miles, and Tammy prepares each kid an activity bag for the journey full of coloring supplies, road games, and maps for cartography uh, practice, snacks, and the most crucial piece of their equipment, a pillow. But even with all this effort and a good bit of character training prior to our departure, resisting the flesh can become wearisome. After miles and miles of asphalt and bridges and gas stops, car naps, and seemingly endless parental dialogue, the central question 
to unlock all the mysteries of joy and hope and contentment cannot be resisted any longer. The dam finally breaks and the question is asked. And that question is, are we there yet? (laughs) So much preparation and not much yield. There's a Lincoln Park song that always plays in my head at moments like this. I tried so hard and got so far, but in the end, it doesn't really matter. (laughs) This isn't always entirely the child's fault. Parents can breed into kids an unhealthy focus on time. The modern scientific mind is obsessed with the passage of time. And so when we come to a passage like today's, we immediately start thinking in terms of when or how long. Like the child, we want to know, are we there yet? Well, I'm going to ask a different question of you when we look at the text this morning. I want to ask the question, are we where yet? Are we where yet? Last week, Peter said, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now, you think about that. He's talking about something, of course, in the past. And so Christians should live for the rest of the time in the present, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The nations are likely to slander us in the future, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But this past, present, future reality begs the question, where are we headed? Are we where yet? The end of all things, Peter says, is at hand. The Greek word for end here is the Greek word telos. We've talked about this in past weeks, and it means the conclusion, the result, the resolution, the purpose, and the destination. Think of it in terms of destination today. It sounds like Peter is telling the passengers in the car, we're almost there. But that was 2,000 years ago. What did Peter mean? What did he mean? Well, I'm going to give you two likely scenarios of what he may have been referring to here. Option one, I'll call this the day-age view. The day-age view. That's slightly tongue-in-cheek. When Peter says the end of all things, he simply means the end of human history. Some of y'all are going to look at me and think, is it really any harder than that? Well, it seems straightforward to read the passage that way, and that is a fair way of reading the text. It could be right. I don't think that you're going to run way off into the weeds if you read the text as the end of all things is at hand. That means the end of all things, the end of time, the end of human history. It's at hand. But I'll be honest, I am not personally convinced that that's the right way to read this text. And it's because of the phrase, at hand in your ESV or Legacy Standard Bible. If you have a New American Standard Bible or a Christian Standard Bible, it'll say near. The end of all things is near. If the end of all things is near, then how come 2,000 years have passed since Peter penned this letter? You might say, oh, that's an easy one. The Bible says that with the Lord, a day is like a 1,000 years and vice versa. Right, I understand that, 
And I won't fault anyone for reading this passage that way. Here's my problem. That would not help or make any sense to the original readers of Peter's letter. How can Peter be saying to his church in New Testament times who are going through present tense suffering, and he's even predicted that in the future the Gentiles might slander you for your good behavior, and say, hey gang, hang on through this persecution. After all, the end is getting close. Now, don't take me too seriously there. I mean, close is, after all, a relative term with God. We could be another 2,000 years or more from when the end of all things come. Now, I say that a little chidey, but think about it for a minute. How does this make sense to the original audience? Pastor Gary DeMar calls this interpretive element the audience relevance element. Speaking of the prophecies in Revelation, which Jesus predicts are soon to take place and are near, that's from Revelation 1, verses 1 and 3, Pastor Gary DeMar asks, how would John's audience have understood the letter of Revelation? Even today, prophecy preachers turn to the time indicators in Revelation and argue that Jesus is coming soon. Gary DeMar says, but if soon means near to the time when we hear the prophecy, and we hear the prophecy enthusiasts say that Jesus is coming soon, then why didn't soon mean what we understood soon to mean when Revelation was first written? It's a fair question. It's a question that we as Bible readers and Bible studiers have to ask when we come to the text. And we can ask the same question about Peter's church. How were they supposed to be encouraged by a prediction from the apostle who was in essence saying, we're almost there, kids, when in reality it was going to be thousands of years in the future before the end of all things came? Now, the second option, and what I think is the likely interpretation here, I'll call the destruction of Jerusalem view. The destruction of Jerusalem view. Before I give an explanation of what I think Peter is talking about here, I do need to ask for a healthy measure of charity from you all. What I'm going to say is likely going to sound foreign to most of us. Most of us have grown up in churches that have a futurist interpretive method when it comes to prophecy. That means that they see prophecy predictions in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, as having a primary end times view, the end of all things. It's going to be the end when all of these prophecies unravel, and then the scripture finally makes sense what God was talking about. In contrast to this, I'm going to argue for what's called a partial preterist view, or that is that these events are grounded mostly in the past, with some still to come in the future. Theologian Gordon Fee rightly points out that study of the Bible begins by asking not what does it mean, but what did it mean. Not what does it mean, but what did it mean. So if what I say sounds as strange to your ears as me telling you that angels took on human form and had relations with women, and that's where the Nephilim came from, well, 
I'm just going to tell you, I warned you ahead of time. Here we go. The telos that Peter has in mind here, the destination, the end of all things, the one that would encourage the people of God in their day in the midst of much persecution in Jerusalem and Judea, the area surrounding, was the end of the old covenant era which took place in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This view roots Peter's words in a historical event which, by the way, Jesus predicted would happen in that generation, and that's from Matthew 24 and his Olivet Discourse, so that both Jesus and Peter's predictions were in fact near. They were close. You might ask the question, how can Peter be speaking of the end of all things? That's not the end of all things. It's just the end of the old covenant. That's something, but it's not all things. Again, this will take some critical thinking, and I have limited time, so here goes. In Matthew 24, Jesus and his disciples were sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples were admiring the Temple Mount, which was across the Kidron Valley from them. In pointing out its beauty, that is the temple's beauty, Jesus tells the disciples that not one stone of the temple on the temple mount would remain on top of another. Surprised, his disciples ask him two questions. When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Mark and Luke make the question even more concise. Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? The end that Jesus predicted here was the destruction of the temple and a returning of Christ in judgment over Jerusalem and the rebellious old covenant order. This, I believe, was fulfilled in 70 AD in the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. And if you read Jewish historian Josephus, who was charged by the Romans to write some historical accounts of the Jews. They're called the Jewish Antiquities, written by Josephus. He records this event in great detail, and the signs and wonders that accompanied Rome's occupation of Jerusalem that happened all through the heavens during that overthrow of Jerusalem line right up with this decreation language that Jesus uses in Matthew 24. Presbyterian pastor John Brown says, the end of all things here is the entire end of the Jewish economy in the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem and the dispersal of the holy people. That was at hand. It was near. For this epistle seems to have been written a very short while before these events took place. It was likely written about seven or so years before the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. It is quite plain, Pastor Brown continues, it is quite plain that in our Lord's predictions, the expressions the end and probably the end of the world are used in reference to the entire dissolution of the Jewish economy. Jesus did, I believe, return briefly in 70 AD over Jerusalem, as He Himself predicted, to judge the Jewish nation But the scriptures are clear that he will come again for the conclusion of human history. 
So to sum up, Peter's church would have been encouraged since the end of the persecution that they were experiencing primarily in Jerusalem at that time at the hands of the Jews would soon come to an end. The early church was, in a sense, almost there. Now, I want to encourage you to not retreat but engage in our cultural moment and the persecution that perhaps we are beginning to experience or sense may be coming. Someone might object and say, Chris, if that's what the text meant to them, then it doesn't have any relevance for us anymore. It doesn't mean anything. If the end came and then those people got ready for it and they had some sober minds and they were prepared and girded up their loins, then it doesn't mean anything for me anymore. I would respond by asking the question, does the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus have no meaning to you since the prophecies that predicted it have already been fulfilled? Of course, that's ludicrous. We know that that gospel story is still having a powerful impact in our time. Does the Old Testament have no meaning for you since the events it records have also already come to pass or been fulfilled? Paul says, whatever was written in former days, speaking of the Old Testament, was written for our instruction so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The principle that we are meant to pull out of this text is that Christians in times of persecution are not to surrender but stand firm. They're not to withdraw but engage. They're not to act defeated but live as more than conquerors. They're not to retreat but pursue the enemy until he's defeated. And eschatological motivators are used frequently in the New Testament. Paul uses them. Peter uses one here in the text this morning. Paul says in Romans 13, verses 11 through 14, Besides this, beloved, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness... And put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Since Paul's readers were living in the New Testament age, the church age, and which will culminate in the end of all things, he encouraged them, be done with that old life. Put on the new life. Walk in Christ. Peter says something similar in his second epistle in chapter 3. He says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of our God? So whether you see the end of the world as near or you see it as far off, our lives, beloved, are short. Your end is near. Even if you are a child today listening to me, and it is likely that you'll live to the age of 80 or more. Don't hide your talents, but invest them. Don't whine about sorrows, but laugh at the times to come. Don't be overwhelmed by life's troubles, but trust Christ, which Peter said at the beginning of this letter, fills us with joy that is inexpressible, and full of glory. 
Martin Luther was once asked, what would he do if he knew that the end of the world would come that very day? I love his response. He replied, I would go plant a tree and I would pay my taxes. I would plant a tree and I would go pay my taxes. If the end of the world was going to come that day, Martin Luther said, what would I do? I'd go plant a tree and I'd pay my taxes. What did he mean? He means when the Lord does come back, I want him to find me being a faithful man with what he's giving me. I want to be faithful. What has God given me to do? Well, today it may be plant a tree. I don't know if I'll ever see the fruit, but I am going to be faithful to that task. Or I've got to pay my taxes. That's obedience to the word of God. I'm going to be found when Christ returns being obedient in his duties for that day. Peter says, because the end was near for them, as perhaps any of us today, the end could be near and we don't know it. What are we to do? We're to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Living in light of the end, Christians are commanded by Peter to be of the Legacy Standard Bible says, sound thinking and a sober spirit. Both of these verbs are states of mind and they're also imperatives. That means they are commands of the Lord to us. The word self-controlled has to do with the inner state of the mind, particularly your mastery over your own thought life. That's why it is self-controlled. It's the control you have over your thinking, your mind, yourself. It's used in Luke chapter 8, verse 35, in a way that would really highlight this, of the Gerasene demoniac after he had been delivered from the legion of demons by Jesus. Listen to this. Luke records, Then people went out to see what happened, and they came to Jesus and found a man from and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Self-controlled. It's the same word. And they were afraid. The Christian ought not to be a daydreamer, especially in tense situations. Awareness is necessary for Christian maturity. Now, in contrast to having self-mastery over your own thoughts, we're also commanded to be sober-minded. And this has to do with how external situations influence your thoughts. Someone who is not sober or is under the influence has had something from the outside come into them and affect the way that they think and act. They're no longer cool, calm, and collective but we are called to let what's outside not have a negative effect on what's inside. Paul told Timothy, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. A full-grown Christian mind doesn't suffer from inward drifting or outward manipulation. The new man is firmly in the driver's seat. No amount of inner drifting or outer compulsion can cause him to entertain the question, are we there yet? Because he has the destination firmly in his sights. And he says to do this for the sake of our prayers. Peter makes this imperative saying both of these actions are to be done for the sake of one's prayers. Charles Spurgeon once said, my own soul's conviction is that prayer is the grandest power in all of the universe. 
that it has more omnipotent force than electricity, attraction, gravitation, or any of those other secret forces which men have given a name, but they don't understand. And I think he's right. Do you consider prayer of as great a worth as the way Brother Spurgeon just described it? Do you consider it of great worth, beloved? It would be hard to argue that you do if the last time you set aside time to pray was the Wednesday night prayer meeting. How alert were you at the prayer meeting anyway? How attentive were you to what God would have you pray for and how focused were you to pray with others as they prayed? One of the main reasons people struggle to pray is because they struggle to control their own minds. Distractions inside and outside eat up all of the time that we take and devote to prayer. So, Chris, how do I fix that? How do I discipline my mind for the sake of my prayers? Let me give you three tips, three things that you can do to be a self-mastered in the mind, sober-minded, not letting external things come in and influence you, person for the sake of your prayers. Number one, start saying no. Start saying no. Training the mind is work. You take your body to the gym, so take your brain to the gym. Give up the coffee, the dark chocolate, the show you've been binge watching, the sleeping in, the need to always have music going. I'm not appealing to you on behalf of asceticism. We are to do whatever we do to the glory of God. Nothing is to be rejected, the Bible says, if it is received with thanksgiving. But remember, sin isn't just an action. It's an appetite. To have self-control, you have to be able to say yes, and also you have to be able to say no. Number two, start praying. There's nothing complex about this. You can pray through a list that you write. You can pray the Lord's Prayer as a pattern for your prayers. You can pray through the ACTS model. The A-C-T-S stands for Acknowledge, Confess, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. Just pray. And pray regularly. Set aside a time each day for prayer. And I would encourage you to set it for a little bit longer than you think you can tolerate. When we work our muscles in the gym, we work them to failure. Your mental muscles are no different. Lastly, memorize Scripture. Scripture memorization is like a mental leg day, if you'll allow me to use the comparison. I have not come across one method of mind training that has helped me more than memorizing Scripture. It reshapes the mind around the very thoughts of God. It lifts the thinking to the level at which God thinks. It disciplines the mind at the only perfect level that we have. I'm going to be speaking of memorizing Scripture at a future men's beer and psalm sing, but reading a verse several times a day and then trying to say it back is a good place to start. If you want to know how to start memorizing Scripture, read a verse several times a day, try saying it back. It's really not much more complex than that. You can do it at the end of your prayer time and it will help you to discipline your mind. Well, in addition to disciplining our minds, Peter encourages us that above all, we're to keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus, in his Olivet Discourse, predicted the end of all things by saying that because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many would grow cold. 
In his instructions for living in light of the end, Peter commands the exact opposite. The Greek translated directly into English says, Before all things among yourselves, love fervent having. Before all things among yourselves, love fervent having. The distinguishing mark of the church of Jesus Christ should be the love of Christ written on the hearts of His people, expressed tangibly towards one another. Years ago, Tammy and I were connected to a team of missionaries in Papua New Guinea who spent four and a half years learning the heart language of an unreached, unengaged people group in order to translate the whole Bible into their language. After about three to four weeks of preaching and more than 40 lessons from the Old Testament where the story of creation culminating in the work of Christ was finally explained, the Kaje people received the good news and over half of the tribe was baptized almost immediately. The following week, at the first gathering of what is today the Kaje church, the behavior of the tribe was noticeably different. One example, their new life in Christ was displayed in that the Kaje women would come to the meeting with stacks of leaves from the jungle and set them outside or on the perimeter of the meeting house where the preaching was going to take place. These were for the mothers of young Kaje infants who wore no diapers so that when they did their business, they would have something to wipe a bottom with. Now, that may not strike you as a profoundly loving thing to do. Well, that was courteous. They made sure they had some wipes available, but that doesn't sound like Christian love. Take into account, beloved, that prior to the gospel, these people were killing and eating one another. It's a big change. The last thing that would be on one's mind in one of these tribes was helping a mother clean up their child's mess. Peter said that this love is ectene or earnest in the ESV. It's deep in the NIV. It's fervent in the King James or the New American Standard. It is constant in the Christian Standard Bible. This word has a broad, what we call, semantic domain. But think of it this way. This love that Christians are to have towards one another is both an intensive love and an extensive love. That is that it has both magnitude and breadth. This is the same kind of love that Christ has for each of us. In Christ, we are able to in some small way comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God in Christ that surpasses our knowledge. This love is the primary and before all things activity in the church of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, today the church of Jesus Christ is what non-tenant calls Siths. This isn't a Star Wars reference, but Siths refers to single-issue thinkers. Single-issue thinkers. Nothing is more primary in their mind than the one issue that means more than everything else. It might be evangelism. It could be modesty. It could be infant baptism or abortion or theonomy or homeschooling or essential oils, you know, so on and so forth. 
I'm sure nobody feels that way. <laughs> the cis wrongly think that if the church would get this issue or that issue right, Jesus would finally be pleased. He would return and usher in the end of all things. Well, Peter says that there is one thing that is to be above all others in the church, and that is love. And this is agape, that God-like sacrificial giving to the hilt all the way kind of love for others. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Homeschooling isn't going to hold us together. Neither is our eschatology or the King James Version, or organic farming, or us all staying away from liquid dish detergent or high-voltage wires. None of those things will hold us together. What can hold us together when we sin against each other? Love. Love will. Proverbs 10 verse 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife. But love covers a multitude of sins. The, King the New King James Version says, But love covers all sins. Suffering people are going to be even more prone to frustration, to outbursts of anger, to bitterness and factions, and they are going to sin against one another. This is an aside, but I would ask, how many of you have been hurt at a previous church? Was it an awful experience? Was it a family or an individual or one of the pastors? Did it create bitterness and distrust in the church or in pastoral leadership? Did people take sides against you? Did you leave hoping it would never happen again? Did you vow to find a church that would never hurt you, a congregation that would keep covenant with you and not put you or your spouse or your family at risk? Well, at Christ the King, I can guarantee you that you will at some point get hurt. We are going to sin against one another, beloved. I hope this doesn't surprise you. We are going to bump into each other. Our kids are going to make one another cry, and that could put a strain on family relationships. Daniel and Jeremy and I are going to strive to lead as unto the Lord, but we don't have perfect pitch, and we are going to make mistakes. And Peter says, love should be right there to cover a multitude of sins. This is not to say that love atones for sins. You can't use stories like Jesus' interaction with the woman who washed his feet when he said, she is forgiven much because she loved much, as if she earned his forgiveness. Fruit is not the source of life, but rather proof that life is coming from its root. Peter is also not saying that agape love is soft on sin. It's not. Doug Wilson rightly says, For our blood guilt, we need a blood gospel. For our blood guilt, we need a blood gospel in order to atone for the heinous crime of our sin. And beloved, I don't think any one of us knows how truly ugly and wretched our sin is in the sight of a holy God. We needed a truly wretched, horrid, ugly but perfect sacrifice for our sin. And that is what Jesus did for us who are in Christ. This love 
that covers over a multitude of sins has less to do with what others do and more to do with the way that you respond to them. But love does cover over, or we might say overlook, not get offended by a multitude of sins. From 1 Corinthians 13, just a few things. You know that love is patient. It is not provoked. It does not impute evil. Think about that for a minute. When's the last time you read someone's behavior and imputed what you thought was going on in that situation? Maybe it was sin, maybe it wasn't. Love doesn't do that. Rather, love bears all things. We have to admit this, as we often do at Christ the King, beloved. Christians today are soft. We are easily offended. This is evident in that most Christians today would read this verse and say, love uncovers a multitude of sins. Love goes on the witch hunt. Love wants to find everybody else's sins and make sure that they know about them so they can get it right and be what Jesus wants them to be. This is where those cis, those single-issue thinkers, try and overcompensate for what in reality is softness in their own hearts. And they try and flex on others by making something primary that's not primary. I would encourage you to consider discussing over lunch today how to make love primary in our church. But I'll give you three ways now. Number one, toughen up. If we're going to overlook one another's sins, we have to have some thick skin. Men learn this naturally in how we test one another. It sounds like insults, but it's the part of men sharpening one another and humbling one another. You know how we kind of pick on each other, we make fun of each other. And I would say, ladies, don't worry when we do stuff like that. When men insult one another, we don't really mean it. And women, you actually know what that's like because when you all compliment one another, you don't really mean it either. <laughs> Bars. <laughs> Number two, get over your single issue shtick. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is to say that what is secondary in the kingdom of God should stay secondary in the kingdom of God. Repent of your hobby horse and quit trying to flex on people who disagree with you about that single issue that you think is primary. Lastly, and this goes along with what I mentioned for mind training, I would have your whole family memorize 1 Corinthians 13. I think this should be standard issue for every New Covenant household. If you're going to rebuke your children, if you're going to tell them that they're out of step with Christ and His gospel, one of the first places you can go is 1 Corinthians 13. You're not walking in love in our home. You've broken the fellowship and the unity because you were not patient. And love is patient. You got easily offended. Husbands and wives can do this for one another. You were easily offended in that moment. Repent. Because love is not easily offended. It doesn't impute that wrong. Three simple things to consider for how to stir up this love in your home and also in our church. Well, lastly, let's look at Peter's encouragement briefly on hospitality. This one's pretty straightforward. Peter's church was to open their homes to any Christian in need. 
Christian hospitality is one of the clearest expressions of a fervent love for one another. This is different from the kind of hospitality that we're used to in the South. Rosaria Butterfield says that Christian hospitality is radically different from Southern hospitality. Tammy and I were talking about Southern hospitality the other night, and we kind of coined a phrase. We, we call it peacock hospitality. You know, it spreads its feathers and says, look at me. Here's what I'm doing. This is our hospitality for you. Isn't it great? But that's about pride. It's about showing off. It's not about their needs, but our validation. And that's why so many women today spend time apologizing for what they can't do in hospitality. Oh, I'm so sorry. We don't have a bigger room to offer. I'm so sorry. I left the casserole in the oven for 2.3 seconds too long. I'm sorry. My husband drank the last of the sweet tea. He didn't remember that we were having people over. Peter's church members needed, as ours do today, what God gave you, not what He didn't give you. Again, from Rosaria Butterfield, Southern hospitality is about impressing people and keeping them at arm's length. Christian hospitality is about opening up your heart and your home just as you are and being willing to invite Jesus into the conversation, not to stop the conversation, but in order to deepen it. Now maybe you have an idea of why Peter has told his church not to grumble about challenges that come along with hospitality. And today, children, you get to learn what will likely be your favorite Greek word of all time. This is the Greek word gungasmoo. Gungasmoo. This is a complaining, whining, fussy attitude. Parents, this week, you can tell your kids that it is not God's will that they gungasmoo. Tell them to stop gungasmooing. What is Peter saying here? Hospitality costs something. Time, money, comfort, leisure. So what? So don't let your front door whine when it opens. A complaining hospitality isn't Christian hospitality. Three tips for showing Christian hospitality in the coming weeks. Number one, hospitality is the husband's job to lead in, not the wife's. Women are nurturers, and that's why hospitality generally comes easier for them. But men are called by God to be leaders. They are responsible for directing this. Brothers, come up with a plan, some expectations for how often hospitality works in your family's life right now, and get insight from your wife and be the one who initiates it. This requires devoted thought. We talked about a little bit this week um, with some of the men inviting unbelievers into your home. Now, I know that's not what Peter's discussing here. He's primarily talking about hospitality in the church. But men, consider how Jesus expected that we would have unbelievers in our home. And how are unbelievers typically going to get invited when our women are home caring for the children as God wanted them to? How are they going to get invited over to our home? How are we going to put ourselves at risk? How are we going to open up our home to somebody who may truly have needs, even an eternal need, the most significant of all? We've got to be the ones who initiate and start this. Second point, and this is something that we've learned from, uh, Tammy and I have learned from Jeremy and I, 
They say that hospitality begins with your family, not with other families. What does it communicate to your own household that company is worthy of special meals and desserts and attention and games and late nights and you never give that to your spouse or to your children? Have you not done this? Have you not been hospitable in your own home? Then repent and hold off offering hospitality to others inside or outside the church and get it right in your own home first. This week, I would encourage each family at Christ the King to invite your family into a specially planned event just for them. Big dinner. You can do candles. You can do music. You can do the works. All with the purpose of sharing what you do have for the sake of your family's joy. Just for the sake of your family's joy. And lastly, repent of your gungus mooing or grumbling heart towards sharing what you have. Proverbs 23, verses 6 through 8 says, Do not eat the bread of a selfish man, and do not desire his delicacies. For as he calculates in his soul, so he is. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsel you've eaten, and you will corrupt or lose your pleasant words. We, uh, Tammy and I, years ago, had to repent of this kind of attitude towards hospitality. We had a guest in our home, and this guest came into our home. We invited him in, and they invited themselves to the refrigerator, and they saw that there was a can of juice in the refrigerator, um, one that we keep on hand just in case one of our children gets sick, and they reached inside, poured themselves a full glass, and Tammy's blood pressure, my blood pressure started. Ha, ah, that's expensive. Okay. The, Gungus mooing is what it is. It's grumbling. Everything in my house is yours. We try and make a practice when we have people over. As soon as they come in the door, we say, welcome home. Because I want everything that belongs to me. If you need it, it's available to you. I want to give what I have. I can't give what I don't have. But I'm willing to give you what I do have for the sake of your needs and your joy. Well, this morning we read about some essential advice that Peter's giving for those who are living in light of the end. Now, they were living in light of the end that was coming within what I think was the next few years. But we may not be living in the light of that same end. We do know, however, that our lives are short and that the talents that Christ gives each of us are in our hands. The ride of life may seem long, but it isn't. Remember to not let distance eclipse destination. Distance should not eclipse destination. That's how children act. Are we there yet? The end of all things for each one of us is near. So Peter says, train your mind so that you can be effective in prayer. He says, put love first in the church. He says, open your home with joy, not complaining. And keep your mind on your eternal hope. Unless, that is, you currently don't have one. And if you do not, can I encourage you that today you can find your eternal hope in Christ Jesus? Can I tell you that that bloody sacrifice for your blood guilt has already been paid out in the Savior, Christ Jesus, our Lord? He was the perfect Son of God and lived the perfect life that we could not live so that anyone who believes in Him and only Him 
trusting only in His good works can be saved and most assuredly, the Bible assures us, will be saved. It's all on Jesus. Everything. All of this is for Jesus. Our hospitality is for Jesus. Our thinking and training of our minds is for Jesus. Our love in the church is for Jesus. We cannot stop worshiping Jesus because this is what we are intended for eternity for. Forever worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have not placed your hope and trust in Jesus, if you don't have an eternal hope, you can today. That offer of salvation is still open. The way is still clear. It is a straight way. It is a narrow way. But it is open to anyone who takes it. Turn from your sin and repent. And today, put your faith in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the opportunity this morning to hear from Your Word and to be encouraged towards love and good works. Father, we confess to You that our love is often not primary. Perhaps for some of us, it's not primary because it's not there. You've not written it on our hearts. Oh Lord, would You work in dead hearts this morning, convicting them of their sin, causing them to run to Christ so that love may be placed there. And for the rest of us who have failed, we feel like abysmally this week. Would you encourage us also to look to Christ who is always willing and ready to forgive us of our sins. He is faithful and even just in forgiving us of those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He still does that even today. We thank you for this, Lord. We pray your blessings on the food and on our fellowship time and our psalm singing. It is in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.